Hello, everybody. We are back. I am sure that we left you on a cliffhanger because we were one episode away from closing out this year of nominees six months ago, seven months ago. Anyway, for various reasons, both personal and professional, we had to take some unexpected time off and... We're probably not going to be able to get episodes out weekly for a little while. And we are looking for someone who can edit the podcast other than me. At a certain point, we probably will set up a Patreon or Apple Plus subscriptions so that we can pay someone to do that. But if you know anyone who does podcast editing who would be interested, hit us up at screentestoftime at gmail.com. Anyway, thank you so much for your patience. I hope that we still have listeners out there. And yeah, maybe this popping up in your feed will brighten your day. And with that, here's our episode on friendly persuasion and the last episode of 1956. I misdoubt any of us here could say with surety what we would do in case of attack. Miss Birdwell? I have my doubts as to the strength of thy convictions, too. I have my own doubts. I've often asked myself what I would do if I saw my family endangered, my my wife and children threatened. If the test comes, all I can say is I hope and pray I can be an instrument of the Lord. That test is coming. It may well be so, friend. Let us pray that the will of God be revealed to us and we be given the strength and grace to follow his will. Hello, and welcome to the Screen Test of Time, the podcast where we watch every movie ever nominated for Best Picture. I'm Susan Araslin. I'm David Daw. And this week we watched the fifth and final of the 1956 nominees, Friendly Persuasion, starring Gary Cooper and Dorothy McGuire in a movie that I didn't hate, but was definitely the least ambitious of all of the movies in this year, Some, which is, yeah, in I- a way, to its credit... <laughs> I mean, here's the thing is it sort of depends on the scale you're talking about, because in some sense, this is more different movies than The Ten Commandments is. (laughs) Fair, fair. But in another sense, like, I totally get what you're saying that, like, none of those movies, except for... I I guess it's worth describing the sort of general structure of this movie, which is like act one is an introduction to all of our characters who are all Quakers during the Civil War. I mean, they're Quakers for their whole life, but we are watching them during the Civil War. (laughs) Yes. And then act two is kind of an exploration of this community and honestly, mostly Gary Cooper's marriage. With one of Hollywood's favorite tropes, the big carnival slash fair montage scene yeah which does seem to go on a little bit longer than it needs to but whatever i mean here's the thing hollywood's a sucker for that i think i'm kind of a sucker for that (laughs) 
I honestly like that sequence in this movie more than I've liked it anywhere except maybe Picnic. Because you do get, like, a sense of why this would be important to the community, like why people would go to this or care about it. And also the way that the Quakers interact with the greater community at large. Exactly. I think it gives a good picture there. But it's only into Act 3 where you really get into anything of like any real heft here, which is the sort of what you would think of as the central question of the movie, which is like, what do you do about pacifism in a world where it's hard to make a better argument for righteous violence than stopping slavery. <laughs> yeah. When I was watching this, I was actually thinking about that, that like as far as slam dunk moral positions go for fighting a war, it's like the United States has had two and it is World War Two, where you go fight the Nazis and the Civil War where you go fight the Confederacy. <laughs> I think this movie handles that question really well and really interestingly and doesn't, like, pretend like there's an easy answer there. Um, like, just like, violence is good if the ends are good. Or, like, never do a violence. Neither turns out to be the answer. Because I feel like we've watched a lot of movies that have asked really complicated moral questions and gone, like... Well, answer A, the end. Like, the quiet man comes to mind <laughs> that's asking this exact question and coming away with, no, just do a violence. Right, right. And for a lot less righteous reasons than this movie offers its characters. I honestly don't even remember what the reason for doing a violence in The Quiet Man was. Your brother-in-law is kind of a dick and withholding your sister's, your uh, wife's yeah, dowry. yeah, right, 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 yeah. So, like, nowhere near as righteous of a reason. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, I guess when I say that this movie has is less ambitious than anything else in this year, to, to define what I mean by that, it is asking a very large moral question that is contained within... I mean, the timeline in this movie is a little bit wonky, which we'll get into, but, you know, it's contained within a pretty short amount of time. It focuses on one community and really one family's experience of this very large moral question, which I think is actually why we end up with such, uh, with so much nuance and it is so complicated is because it can be, because it is personal to so many individuals within the family, but again, it is a family and not a community or a country or a world, but also just that it's, it's telling a more intimate story. Yeah. And I think it's actually better for not trying to tell like the Bible or 30 years that represent the entirety of Texas or around the world in 80 days, which is like, this is the whole world. <laughs> So when I say that it's, like, not as ambitious, I mean that. Also, it's shorter, um, which is hilarious because it is almost two hours and 20 minutes long. Yeah, but it's also, like... <laughs> oh, I'm so glad we're done with these nominees. Yeah. I think you're totally right that it's... Ambitions are smaller because its scale is smaller. Yeah. And I think that, like, that plays to the movie's strengths and also it becomes 
a little bit of a problem for the movie where it kind of can't decide on what that scope is. Um, Like, I think especially sort of Act 2. So I was researching this a little bit, and it turns out the novel this is based on, Mm -hmm. I sort of thought, like, this movie has kind of a tacked-on happy ending. So my assumption was that, like, oh, in the novel it all ends much more sadly. But it's essentially the same story. Um, And instead, no, this part of the novel ends essentially the same way it does in the film. It's just that the novel then goes on for another two-thirds of the novel after this, because the scope of the novel is the entire life of Gary Cooper's character as a Quaker throughout the 19th century. Um, Ah, And the Civil War is a very important moment of that, but is only one part of it. Um, And the second act kind of gets into the, like, episodic nature of the novel a little bit, where you go on these sort of quirky little adventures where, like, Gary Cooper buys an organ even though Quakers don't like music and his wife gets very upset about it. Or, like, they go off to sell their produce and end up at this weird farm with a, like, widow and all of her daughters trying to... They are so horny. ...marry her daughters off to Gary Cooper's son, and they're all, like, super horny. They are so Um, horny. (laughs) And, like, that stuff isn't not fun, but it, it, it feels slight compared to this big weighty moral question that we set up in Act 1 and explore in Act 3 of when is violence necessary? Is violence ever necessary? Is there a way in which pacifism actually can support violence uh, unwittingly? Yeah, yeah I. <laughs> so I think one of my major issues with this movie is that is that thing is the the episodic nature of act two really and these little side quests i guess is that i'm like what the fuck is the tone of this movie because it's like oh look it's a quirky family comedy about people who have like this specific religion and say the all the time yeah and then when we do actually get into what the meat of the movie is which like you said is kind of uh i wouldn't even say foreshadowed it's like it's more obvious than that in the very beginning of the movie when they go to church and some random union soldier or military officer of some kind comes in and says like well the the rebels are coming this way so you're gonna have to be ready to do a fighting and they're like we won't do a fighting and gary cooper is like well I hope that when I'm faced with having to do a fighting that I make the right choice. And then like, do, 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 let's go to the fair. I, I mean, it, it, what's hilarious about that scene is it ends even more explicitly telling you what the movie you're in is than that. Because Gary Cooper goes like, I, I've often wondered what I would do if I was tested to do violence to protect my family. I hope the good Lord will help me pass that test. And the Union soldier looks straight at him and goes, you are going to be tested in that way. Like, that is going to happen and, to and you. Yeah, it's not foreshadowing. Yeah, That's what like, I mean. Like, foreshadowing is an <laughs> implication. This is like... A direct statement. Hello, and welcome to the text of our film. Yeah. But then I'm like, where is it? <laughs> um, but you're right that it is jarring when it does then switch from that to, oh, my wife's upset with me again. 
and like, we're going to go have wink, wink sex in the barn. Because she will not sleep under the same roof as this organ. <laughs> yeah. Um, and like, I think it's a little bit, I'm, I'm kind of ambivalent about it because I like all that stuff. Like I like act two. I think Gary Cooper is charming in it. I think Dorothy McGuire is charming in it. I like it. It just does feel when you get to the end of the film and you do feel like, oh, the, the resolution of act three feels so rushed Maybe we could have cut some of the wacky organ adventures and, like, explored the trauma of killing a man for the first time as a lifelong pacifist for more than negative three seconds. Like, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, and also the stuff that happens, I mean, it's even scored in a very slapsticky, comedic way. Even the times where we have these little glimpses of looking at the, you know, how do the younger Quaker kids, because there's the, there's like a teen daughter and a teen son, and then there's little Jess, who ostensibly is like, at the beginning is kind of our narrator, and then that just stops, which good, frankly. <laughs> I totally forgot that. Uh, yeah. I'm like, thank you for actually stopping doing this thing, because I hate that shit. Yeah. But the teen daughter has a crush on this boy who's a Union soldier, and there's a little bit of conflict and tension there. Not a lot. And then also he gets into a weird wrestling match at the fair that the teen son then sort of gets in a fight, but... He is the thing is like the way that the teen son experiences war and uh, how totally traumatized he is by killing someone is done really, really beautifully. But he's such a fucking bratty, like, I want to go to war asshole up until that point that I mean, it had to have been done beautifully for me to care, honestly. Yeah, I totally agree. Yes. Like, uh, I guess we should say what happens in Act Three. Like, when war fully comes to them, there are Confederate Rangers, or just like I forget what they call them, cavalry, basically. But like, just but they are coming through and raiding stuff, and just like getting supplies from anybody's place they can find, and that is sort of the scale of the threat to this community. And the oldest son goes off to formally fight against the Confederacy because as Gary Cooper like puts it, that's super rad. He has a righteous sword in his heart and he should pull it out and use it if that's what he thinks is best. Mom does not agree. The mom does not agree and asks him to pray on it. And I do think it's kind of beautiful, makes him promise to pray on it. And he comes downstairs afterwards with a gun and she's like, you promised. And he, and he's like, yeah, I prayed on it. I'm still doing this. Um, That's That was my answer. Yeah. And he goes off, finds that the actual activity of doing violence is different than how you imagine it, even if that violence is righteous in as close as you could define that to be true. Uh, the the sort of ending for that character is Gary Cooper finds him shot 
holding the hand of the man he just killed, trying to kind of process having killed someone. Yeah, I'm not even sure it's just killed. It feels like he's been lying there for at least a few hours. Yeah. And Gary Cooper goes off because their horse, the horse that he took, comes back to the farm without the son, whose name I don't remember, but is played by Anthony Perkins, and he's doing a really good job when the script calls for him to finally do something that, you know, is compelling. Yeah. uh, And not just be like, I want to go fight people. And Gary Cooper actually is faced with the challenge that he said that he hoped that, you know, God would help him make the right decision because they have this really annoying neighbor who's also funny, but who basically is a Methodist and like kind of pokes at them for being Quakers and they sort of poke back as much as Quakers are allowed to poke, I guess. Yeah. He's also trying to get the organ for free because he's hoping that Dorothy McGuire will be like, Get the organ out of my house. Yeah. But he goes off to fight and he gets shot and is dying when Gary Cooper goes to try to find his kid. And he has like the most unbelievable death scene (laughs) I've ever seen. It's entirely down to his performance. Like plot wise, that scene is really affecting and it still works pretty well because Gary Cooper. Gary Cooper's reaction is so good. Yeah. But that guy totally does the like fake death rattle thing of like, oh, the the spirit is leaving my body. God. Thing. Of, yeah, like, like the thing that people make fun of. <laughs> yeah. For like, this is bad acting. And then the guy who shot him is hanging out nearby and tries to kill Gary Cooper, who then fights with him and wins, but does not, when it comes down to him, actually kill the guy. He wrestles the gun away from him and then chooses not to shoot him and let the guy go. Which is, one, really impressive for a guy who's never fought in his entire life. Though Gary Cooper's a big dude. Yeah. But two is actually... uh, Again, like, we have all of these different nuanced ways in which people are participating in violence in the family. So you've got the son who is like, I want to go do this, and then kills someone and really is super fucking traumatized by it. You've got Gary Cooper who is faced with literally his own life being taken from him and still chooses not to shoot the guy. And then you have the mom. Yeah. And the mom is, in some ways, I think, the, the for me at least, the like most immediately visceral illustration of this conflict, where, as we mentioned in last week's episode, the family has a pet goose that feuds with Lil' Jess, the eight-year-old boy, but that the mother is really attached to. And they start the film, the first thing that you hear about is how Lil' Jess hates Samantha the Goose. And he calls her a snake on stilts, which I thought was the funniest fucking thing I'd ever heard. <laughs> yeah. But you think, like, this is going to be a big part of the movie. And then he and Samantha are fighting, and Samantha will bite him, and he's mean to Samantha. And then that kind of, like, the goose disappears for a while. I actually sent you a text, David, where I was like, I haven't seen Samantha the goose in an hour. <laughs> 
what the fuck? I thought she was going to be the narrative heart of this film. Uh, yeah. And maybe she is in a way, actually. Yeah, because the real problem is little Jess goes away for an hour. And therefore, you don't really hear about Samantha a whole lot until the Confederate Raiders, of course, come through immediately after Gary Cooper leaves. And there's just Dorothy McGuire, the daughter, and this little eight-year-old boy in the house. And the wife is sort of the most staunchly non-violent member of the family, just the most devout Quaker of all of them, is a minister. And so is immediately like, we are not going to fight you. Take whatever food you need. Take whatever supplies you need. There's no fight here. She cooks for them. Then the Confederates, of course, like go friggin' crazy and like start raiding the entire house and just grabbing anything that isn't nailed down. And one of them attempts to kill and eat Samantha the Goose and does so really quite graphically. Like you see this soldier on screen, like grabbing and wrestling with this goose to try and snap its neck. Yeah, I don't think that they could reasonably have said that no animals were harmed in the making of this film. Yeah. That animal had a rough time. (laughs) Yeah. And had to do her own stunts. You know, they didn't have a stunt goose. Yeah. But the the wife does manage to save it before it gets too bad by first screaming like, it's a pet, it's a pet. And then when they're not listening, grabbing a nearby broom and beating the soldier over and over with it. Like, not like gonna kill him, but just like hitting him repeatedly while screaming, it's a pet, it's a pet, until the guy like calms down and lets it go and goes, gosh, I wish I would have known that earlier and wanders away. And doesn't really care about the fact that he got hit by a broom a couple times. But this is just devastating for Dorothy McGuire because when she gets, when she has that same test, she finds that she will do a violence when it is asked of her. When she sees an injustice, even though she knows in her head, like, I am a pacifist, I will not do this thing. When the test came, she grabbed a broom and hit a guy. Yeah, over the goose. Yeah. Imagine if it had been her family, you know? Yeah. Ah, so disappointed in you, Dorothy McGuire. (laughs) No, but she's pretty shaken by this. Yeah. And like, I think it is, I think it is to the movie's credit that her being shaken by that makes sense. You know, the movie plays it as a little bit of a comedic beat that she's like, never tell your father. And he kind of needles her about it when he finds out in the last scene. But it is also treated as like, God, nothing bad physically has happened to this family, but it makes sense that that would still be devastating for her. Like, you care. Yeah, well, because of course it would be, because she's been absolutely certain this whole time that if she were put to the test, there's no way that she would do violence, and she'd beat a guy up with a broom over a goose. Yeah. Not that Samantha isn't very important, I'm sure. (laughs) Samantha. What a name for a goose. Like, that's such a big name for a goose. Yeah. So the thing, though, is that all of this, which is actually quite interesting, is like the last, what, 45 minutes of a two hour, 20 minute movie? Yeah, I mean, I would say not even. I would say like the sun decides, like I was sort of keeping track of it, and the sun like actively decides, like gets his gun and leaves 30 minutes before the movie is done. Whoa, okay. So, yeah, it's like nowhere near 45 minutes. Yeah. And it is definitely the most important 
best written, most well acted, most affecting part of the film. I and just feels I wouldn't say it feels totally incongruous because I do feel like the performances by Dorothy McGuire and Gary Cooper really do manage to tie this stuff together in a way that maybe the script really doesn't. Uh, And I think the editing and scoring are trying their damnedest to undermine them. And they're just really good. (laughs) So it doesn't. Um, But it is like, oh, shit. Now we're like in a movie with stakes and like things are happening. And this is really heavy important stuff to explore and it does feel a bit like what the hell were we doing with the like widow and her three horny daughters like what was what was all of this nonsense about (laughs) and i think even more than that it makes it so like disappointing when you kind of come out into this last coda scene that kind of goes back to that tone yeah like the son's arm is in a sling but other than that, everybody kind of seems back to like, you know, joshing around and trying to find the way through the Quaker faith. Or like, oh, ha ha ha, mom beat up a guy with a broom and everybody laughs. And it's like this insanely traumatizing thing just happened. The Civil War is, I assume, still happening because they say the first part of this movie is in night is in 1862 and the son's arm is still in a sling. So I don't think it's been three years. Um, so like the Civil War is still going on just over the hill. Everybody just had a probably the most traumatic day of their life and then they all just get in their carriage and go to church and you're like could i have some time to explore this please because this feels like such a more interesting moment for us to be watching than the house of the horny daughters um (laughs) and oh my god that is absolutely the name of that house And somehow they're all the same age and look nothing alike. I'm like, where did these where did yeah. these women come from? Um, there is definitely a like, if we're gonna be here, I need to know the occult ritual that made these daughters spring into existence. Yes, because they're all exactly <laughs> um, twenty one. I don't like how is this? How did this happen? Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, even the Oregon stuff, which does I think go on for probably a little bit too long, to be honest. I do feel like is in some kind of support of this later thing because it shows how like Dorothy McGuire is very, you know, she's very, very serious about being a Quaker. And eventually the organ ends up in the attic, which is like the compromise, I guess. But she still is not. She's like music. We can't we can't have that. But then when something that is much more serious, which is the pacifism, which is like the the real foundation and bedrock of their faith is tested And she fails that test, not spectacularly. She doesn't kill anybody. Um, But I do think that it it puts that in context in a way that I don't think that we would have without the Oregon stuff. I just don't know that it needs to go on for so long. (laughs) I agree that, like, if this movie is going to be two hours and 15 minutes long, we could probably cut 30 minutes from Act 2 and tack on at least 15, 20 minutes of, like, how is this family affected by this experience that they've just had? Right. Um, and I think that that would make it a, a better movie and spend more time in what I think, at, like, I, I am, again, ambivalent about this movie because Act 3 is really good. 
Act 3 is maybe the best exploration of pacifism, certainly in Screen Test of Time, we've seen, except maybe, maybe, maybe Grand Illusion. Mm, yeah. Other than that, this is the best expl- exploration of, like, what does it mean to do violence? What does it mean to do violence for a cause? Um, and... It's really compelling and well-acted and well-executed on basically every level, except there just ain't enough of it, and it just stops. And and so abruptly. Yeah. It's interesting that you talk about Grand Illusion, because Grand Illusion's whole thing is like, war is stupid and nonsensical, and there's no reason to have it. Why are we doing this? Which, like, for World yeah. War One. Yeah, that's a that, that's a legitimate stance. But for the Civil War, like, there's unquestionably a reason why this is happening. Yeah. They're kind of like two sides of the same discussion of pacifism. This movie is also in conversation with High Noon. Like, in a, in a weird way, it's sort of a Gary Cooper's answer to his own performance in High Noon, where he goes around asking everybody to do righteous violence and everybody <laughs> is kind of shying away from it because that violence part gets pretty tricky. And this is a movie where people keep constantly asking him, aren't you going to do violence? You have a really good reason to do violence. And he goes, no, I don't. I just don't think it's in my heart. Like, I don't think that's where I'm at, even if I agree with everything you're saying about why to do. It. Oh, man, I just realized in High Noon, his wife his blonde wife was a staunch pacifist and Quaker. Yeah. This really is like... Yeah. Yeah, wow, this is very in conversation with High Noon in a way that I hadn't even really connected until this moment. Gary Cooper is definitely in his, like, I'm a decent, upstanding, righteous man who is super fucking put upon period of his yeah. career. And I'm here for it. Yeah, I think he does great work with it. He is so compelling in that scene where he has to fight for his life against a Confederate soldier. And it's a fight scene. And I'm like seeing all of the emotional and intellectual shit that's going on with him during a fight scene. Yeah. Oh, this movie is good when it's good. Yeah. <laughs> the thing is, like, even the stuff that I'm saying is not good is still good. It's just like, you know, quirky, fun silliness. It's just. It's just taking time out of what could be an even better movie in a weird way. Because, like, yeah, I think that Act 2 is this kind of perfectly, not even perfectly serviceable, quite enjoyable little romantic, like, family... Drama. Not quite comedy. Dramedy. But, like, yeah. Um, where, like, you know, the the fight about the organ resolving with her like going out into the barn and refusing to sleep under the same roof but then Gary Cooper comes out there and is sweet to her and then you kind of cut to the next morning and you can tell they had sex but both because they're Quakers and because of the Hayes Code they can't say it out loud so they keep going like how are we going to not tell the kids how are we going to not tell the oh shit a neighbor is coming what are we going to do and like, the that's neighbor so finds the flower in the hay in the barn yeah <laughs> And like, like kind of ribs all... him about it. It's really funny. <laughs> it's very like it's funny and it's cute and I like it. I do just also think like, but God, there's also this even better movie right over there that could have used a little more time to breathe. And in yeah. a year where like movies are apparently allowed to be four goddamn hours <laughs> long, Ten Commandments, 
Like you are just like, why'd you stop? You were really on something. Yeah, you could you could be here for another hour if you wanted to be. Uh, yeah, yeah. I agree. So, rating this movie, like, I mean, it's not a five. You know, like, it's better than that for sure. And like, in a weird way, the biggest reason it's not like a it's the reason it's getting rated so low in my mind is this movie could have been a 10 yeah and it's not and i can say directly it's not and so i'm like kind of angry enough to be like six or seven even though like i could also make an argument for like eight because again like that third act god when it is really on what it is on it's great um but it is also like well then you should have fucking done that more yeah i don't think it's an eight yeah I f- I'm torn between a six and a seven, but I kind of feel like a six is too low. Yeah, I, 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 I'm fine with seven. I think seven is probably fair. I just think it's kind of interesting that, like, I think if I was sitting down with the non-existent spreadsheet of what we've rated every single movie since <laughs> we began, I could find some eights where I would go, like, I mean, friendly persuasion's better than that, in the sense that, like... I don't know, we're not very generous with That's eights. true. I, I think it's just... Though I think we gave Giant an 8. Yeah, and I guess we're about to get into that because this is our last movie of the year. And we should talk about how we're going to be ordering those films. Well, one, Around the World in 80 Days should absolutely not have won. No, it it is, I would argue, the worst movie of the year. Yeah, oh, I think I... Mm. Yeah, I think it's the worst movie of the year. It's interesting, too, because it is one of those where I actually don't know why it ended up being that... Well, you mentioned this, actually, in the episode, that there were so many cameos from, like, every fucking body in Hollywood that you end up voting for your friend because they had 12 seconds of screen time. Yeah. There were plenty of movies in this year that were just as big and long and absurdly swinging for the fences so why that movie yeah i mean certainly i sort of think if you're looking at the two of them and they're probably the two easiest to compare of around the world in 80 days and the 10 commandments what absolute psychopath would pick around the world in 80 days right <laughs> like if you're gonna do an overstuffed epic tale that jumps around between little episodic stories and has not the best acting on earth, like even in that subcategory, go Ten Commandments, it's at least fun. Yeah. And um, has like bonkers effects. Yeah, I I don't get it at all. Unless it is just what you said, where like everybody just ended up voting for their friend. Yeah. Yeah, I would say it is at the bottom with King and I right above it. Like, King and I is a tighter film with some interesting performances, but woo, it's racist. Yeah, just the the fact that it is, like, it's just never going to get higher than second place because it's just so wildly racist. Yeah. But it is at least an interestingly performed, interestingly art-directed racist movie, which makes it significantly better than Around the World in 80 Days, another racist movie. Right, which is just racist, <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, and then I think Ten Commandments is... is significantly higher than those but is third yeah i'm leaning toward giant as the movie that i think should have won for this year um i yeah 
I think this is a consistency versus like what's the highest point you reach argument. Because I think the best moment of friendly persuasion is better than the best moment in Giant. But there's a lot of moments in friendly persuasion where I feel like I'm just watching a movie and there's so much compelling stuff in Giant. Yes. And, and, you know, the... Gary Cooper and Dorothy McGuire are doing really good acting in Friendly Persuasion, no question. And I would say actually more consistently than anyone in Giant. But James Dean and Elizabeth Taylor and Rock Hudson, when they have their real acting showpieces, are... It's just it's just bigger, you know? Yeah. And, like, I do think, you know, I ordinarily kind of hate the, like given a movie a bump for like and this was their final performance because so often it is just like well it has nothing to do with the movie being good or bad it's just that this person died immediately afterward but this is like such an announcement of a great talent from james dean like he's been in movies before obviously but this is james dean doing a performance of i can do it all i can be the villain i can play old i can play creepy i'm not just i can out brando brando yeah I'm not just the most attractive man you've ever seen. I'm a fucking great actor. And then you don't get any more James Dean. And that does add yeah. a lot of poignance to the performance yeah, and to the movie. I think it's giant, but I think like yeah. we didn't really answer the question. And I think watch Friendly Persuasion, because I think even though... It isn't structured the way I would like, even though it is kind of just a movie for a lot of the runtime. It's really compelling when it's compelling. Oh, actually, something to to mention about Friendly Persuasion, especially in contrast to Giant, is that yeah. Friendly Persuasion, there is a farmhand who works on the farm whose name is Enoch, who we learn is a runaway slave. And when it becomes clear that the Confederacy is, is going to come and start, you know, attacking people, he says to them, you know, look, I'm a runaway slave. If they find me, it's going to be bad news for me. Um, so you, you all have been really nice to me, but I'm going to have to take up arms and go fight. And it's, very obviously not news to this family. Like, they know that he is a runaway slave, and they, they're they fine with that. Most likely, you know, we don't have any explicit scene where you see them take Enoch in, but most likely they took him in because of that, because they are st- staunchly anti-slavery yeah. and d- d- had an opportunity to do something about it and took that opportunity. They're just also nonviolent, so if that solution involves violence, they're in a bit of a pickle. <laughs> And Joel Flewellen gives a really beautiful performance the few times that he is allowed to to do that because he's not on screen very much. And there's, you know, after so many of these movies that have really caricatured black characters, I kept waiting for the sh- other shoe to drop. I was like, okay, but when does he do some menstrual crap? And it never comes. Yeah. He's an intelligent, fully realized human with real pains and real stakes and real feelings. And 
you know, even when it's not explored, the fact that he has a backstory at all, the fact that he has a reason for working for this family puts this movie head and shoulders in terms of representing a black character above almost every movie we've seen with a black character so far. Right. That, like... That those characters so often just sort of spring fully formed as the maid, right? Of just like, why does this family have a maid? Because there's a black maid in the movie and she has to say sassy stuff. Right. And if there's any conflict with their employer or in the case of Gone with the Wind, their enslaver, it is always played for like funny sassiness. Yeah. And this was very serious and and handled really beautifully. Uh, whereas, like, the racism and the confrontation of racism in Giant is more of the film, but isn't handled quite as well. And Enoch's character and story is another example of something in Friendly Persuasion where I'm like, can we cut the House of Horny and, like, explore this a little bit more? Because this is interesting. Yeah, I-, I totally agree. And I think, like, It is, yeah, it's yet another thing where the movie, like, hits a 10, and you're like, well, why didn't you do this the whole time? More 10, more 10. 10, And, like, it's, it's, again, in contrast to Giant, where I think you're right of, like, when the, it's not like it springs up out of nowhere in Act 3 of Giant, that, like, hey, this movie is about racism and the like changing relationship of texas to latinos in the state over the course of this story which is like 60 years right and it's not like that comes out of nowhere but it is that like the characters you're exploring that with do just kind of pop up because we like need somebody to be this kind of thing so we can do this kind of scene with it right right versus like Enoch feels like a very, it's a very natural thing for this family to have a runaway slave as a farmhand. Like, that makes sense. They're Quakers in the mid-19th century. They strongly believe what they believe. If a runaway slave came by and was like, I need help, they would help them. But it also is this thing where it then becomes part of the story rather than just like a guy that's there. Yes. Like, oh, yeah. The, and they have a farmhand who we know absolutely nothing about. And then occasionally says like sassy shit to the wife or whatever. And it's like, no, he's he's a human and has an interesting story. But I want more. Give me Enoch's story. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I guess it is giant. I'm going to say giant with a, like, maybe there could also be kind of a tie. This is a lot closer than, I'm, I, I'm trying, I'm struggling to think of another year where it's been this close. And I've liked the movies. There have been some years where I've gone like, I don't know, who fucking cares? All these movies are garbage. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that has definitely happened. Um, I don't feel like we've ever actually had a time where we've struggled with the top one this much. I feel like we've struggled for the second position. Yeah, a lot, but it's usually pretty clear if there's a good, if there's an good movie, <laughs> which one it is. And this is this is a bit up in the air. And there's, I mean, honestly, I feel like there's an argument to be made either way. Yeah. Uh, I'm just going to go for Giant because it knows what its stakes are the whole movie. Yeah. And it plays them the whole movie. I I would agree with that. Yeah. I I think it's 
I think you were right to say, like, kind of put an asterisk next to it of like, hey, if I if it were friendly persuasion, I ain't mad at it. Right. Like, if you catch me next week, I might be like, you know what? Actually, it was friendly persuasion. <laughs> but I think like right now, sitting here in the you know recording booth, recording this episode. Yeah, I think it's giant. Uh, but I do think watch both of them. Watch giant. Watch friendly persuasion. Uh, I think they're both worth seeing. Maybe not on the same day, because that's a lot of no. movie. Well, d- I'm not sure you physically could watch <laughs> both of them on the same day. Uh, so, yeah, next week we are going to start the 1957 awards. And God, 1957 is like all bangers. Like you've got except like... Except ex- for... Except for... But I do think it's it's to the year's credit that like... The only movie I've never heard anything great about stars Marlon Brando and is an interracial romance story where Hollywood has taken the shocking step of actually casting an Asian woman as an Asian character. What? (laughs) Yeah. And like, (laughs) you know, I'm not ready to go like, and therefore it's probably a secret masterpiece, but like just going with Marlon Brando managed to cast an Asian woman as an Asian person. I'm already like more excited about that film than almost anything in this year. And then the four other movies are Bridge on the River Kwai, Twelve Angry Men, Peyton Place, and Witness for the Prosecution. So like 1957 is in good shape. It is a lot of movies that I at least have been led to believe are bangers. Yeah. I'm not ready to say that they are because I haven't seen them. Uh, And, you know, people say that um, Gone with the Wind is a banger and it sucks. Like even above being racist, it's just not a good movie. So we will we'll find out. Yeah, I will say the only one I've I have seen is Bridge on the River Kwai. And Bridge on the River Kwai is fun. Okay. It's a good movie. I feel confident. I mean, fun is maybe a weird word to use for that movie, but like it is well made, you will enjoy watching it. But that's not what we're watching first, right? It's not No, it's it's 12 Angry Men. Right. Next week, which I assume is going to be good because it is Sydney Lumet directing henry fonda which seems like a slam dunk i'm just saying though assuming yeah i are we talking about the poster now because yeah assuming it is good our good poster terrible movie rule it will finally be firmly broken because this poster fucking rules yeah it is amazing And not just in a, because sometimes we've been like, this poster is great, but also like the poster is so bad that it's good. Yeah. This is, this is like, there's a knife and it's going down into the 12 in the title and the handle is splitting the jury in half. And yeah, and the, the, the handle is, the knife is also splitting Henry Fonda's name. It's Henry on one side, Fonda on the other, which rules the it's also splitting the tagline of life is in their hands death is on their minds in half i love the the description though it explodes like 12 sticks of dynamite yeah that god and just like the color palette of this poster the poster is just rad as hell yeah. and like if the movie is half as rad as this poster is it will be a great movie and will firmly break our good poster rule yes finally for the first time yeah 
I've, yeah, because I feel like there have been a couple where, like, they were, the movie was okay and the poster was also okay. I feel like we re- we figured out the reverse was possible really fast. Because it used to be that it was inversely proportional to poster quality. Right. Shitty poster, great movie. No, there can be shitty posters for shitty movies. Boy, can there. Yeah. I think this is the first time where there's a poster where I'm like, 10 out of 10, and this movie... Is probably going to be at least above a five for the first time. So, yeah, tune in next week to see if the good poster, bad movie rule, we put the final nail in its coffin. Yeah. And until then... This was like a couple of chapters from a novel, and like they maybe should have switched around exactly what chapters they did and in what order, but the like central chapter they picked is a real fucking banger. So, like, good work on that score. I I can't actually disagree with any of that. (laughs) Bye, everybody. (laughs) Goodbye. A handsome young drummer came by in the spring With beautiful laces in cases I'm sorry, she said I can't buy anything Tis love that I need Silver and pearl, and a two penny bridal bouquet.